Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 83. Over the past weeks, we've extended the podcast to include a Twitter handle, at the WW1 podcast. That's at the WW, the number one podcast. This lets us include images and details from the show over the week. You can ask us questions, make comments, get a link that you might have missed, or even ask us to drop a note to one of our guests for you. A big shout out to all of you who are now following us on Twitter. Together, we're creating a conversation about the events 100 years ago this week and the World War I centennial commemoration happening now about the war that changed the world. On the show this week, you'll join us for our August 1918 preview roundtable, where Dr. Edward Lengel, Catherine Akey, and I look ahead at the big events and themes coming up for this August. Mike Schuster echoes and details several subjects that come up in the preview. Tracy Robinson tells us about the Daughters of the American Revolution and their role in World War I. Joining us from Harley-Davidson is company archivist Bill Jackson. Jim Davenport and Louise McLafferty share the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project from Lackawanna County in Pennsylvania. And of course, The Buzz, where Catherine Akey highlights some of the World War I commemorative stories from social media. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. It's August 1918. The German spring offensive is over. In fact, the direction of the war is changing in fundamental ways. So as we like to do at the start of each month, Dr. Edward Lengel, Catherine Akey, and I got together to discuss an overview of what happened 100 years ago this month. What are the overarching themes, events, and happenings regarding World War I in August of 1918? What follows is our discussion. So here we are in August of 1918. Ed, what do you think the major theme is for this month? The theme for this month is defeat for the Central Powers. They have entered the end game of the First World War. They are aware by this point, thanks to a number of events, that they cannot win. And in fact, that they're going to lose. This is a result of, first of all, defeat on the ground, in particular, the British and Allied offensive at Amiens on August 8th. It continues through the month. This is an offensive of British, Australian, Canadian, and some American troops with some French involvement that really breaks the German army. General Ludendorff calls the Black Day of the German army for the first time. You see mass surrenders of German troops. American forces continue to be involved in offensive actions on the Western Front during August, and their goal during this time is to push the Germans out of some of their remaining territory that they had captured in the spring. 
for the most part, they're continuing to fight under French command. There are high points and low points. But the primary issue here in August is the realization of Pershing's vision for the creation of an American army under American command, specifically under his command, with the American First Army being created in August. This is the army that Pershing will command that will take over an American sector of the front and continue in a number of offensives through to the end of the war. And Catherine, you had mentioned in a previous meeting the 100 Days Offensive. What's that all about? Yeah, so the 100 Days Offensive is the overarching umbrella name for a Russian stacking dolls worth of battles over the course of August and September. So that starts on August 8th with the Battle of Amiens. At the very front of the month is the very last couple days of the Second Battle of the Marne, which if we'll remember was a counterattack. So that was the Allies countering against the last German offensive of the Kaiserslacht. So that 100 Days Offensive is an Allied offensive, just like the Kaiserslacht was a German offensive over the spring. So this is the Allies punching back. Ed, do you think that part of what's happening to the Germans now is just running out of steam, running out of morale, running out of resources? What's causing the turn? It's a collapse in morale of the German armed forces as they recognize that their hopes of defeating the French and defeating the British before the Americans can arrive and strengthen the Western Front have failed. The Americans are playing an increasingly visible role on the Western Front. More and more American divisions are entering into the lines. For example, the first all-draftee American division to enter the lines on the Western Front, the 77th, enters the line toward the end of August. And they're pushing the Germans out of the Marne salient and back toward the Vell River. So the Germans are aware of that. They're aware that their U-boat offensive has failed, that there's an increasing tightening of the British blockade against the German home front. And they're also aware they can read the newspapers, even despite the propaganda, and see that things in the East and the South are not going well. Germany, the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria, the Austria-Hungary are nearing collapse. So there, there's just very little hope anymore, but what hope they have will increasingly begin to center simply on protecting the homeland, not on trying to win the war. For the two of you, if you were to summarize this month in a simple statement, what would it be? This is the beginning of the end for the central powers, and clearly the war is approaching its final stages. That's how I see it, and that's how they saw it as well. Many of the Allied commanders still presumed that we were going to carry on into 1919, but they also assumed that we were going to have to drive into Germany and carry the fight to the German people directly. And Catherine, how about yourself? I would say preparing for the worst. The Germans see they're losing their negotiating power a little bit by losing this territory that they gained since the spring and losing some older salients like the San Miguel salient that they've had for a few years. There's an English war correspondent, Philip Gibbs, who has a really good quote about this period in the war on the Western Front, where he says, The change has been greater in the minds of men than in the taking of territory. On our side, the army seems to be buoyed up with the enormous hope of getting on with this business quickly. There's a change also in the enemy's mind. 
they no longer have even a dim hope of victory on this Western Front. All they hope for now is to defend themselves long enough to gain peace by negotiation. So, Catherine, there's a lot of action on the Eastern Front as well as Russia goes into some new interesting places. How's that go? Yeah, unfortunately, Russia's not really going into new places, but they are getting deeper and deeper entrenched in civil war. And so now this summer, the Allies are actually sending the Commonwealth troops, so the British, Canadian, Anzac troops, as well as some French, and some 8,000 American soldiers are landing in Archangel, which is a very, very, very northern port city on the Arctic Ocean, basically due north, northeast of Moscow. So we're landing Allied troops there to support the White Army, which is a conglomerate of different political parties and supporters who are sort of all friends because they're fighting against the Red Army, which is the Bolsheviks. So we're there and trying to have some say in what's going on in Russia as their civil war rages on. And the great saga of the Czechoslovak Legion is reaching a crescendo right now. This is one of the many consequences of the release of millions of Austro-Hungarian prisoners when Russia collapsed. Many of them try to make their way back to Austria-Hungary. Many of them have been affected by Bolshevik ideas, and they're now spreading those through Eastern Europe. But the Czechoslovaks are hoping to establish their own country, and they can't go right back into Austria-Hungary because it's still an actively hostile government. So they go east along the Trans-Siberian Railway, and by now in August, they're engaged in fighting Red Russian forces along Lake Baikal as they make their way to Vladivostok and what will eventually be circumnavigating the globe to get back to Czechoslovakia by the long way around. Czechoslovakia does declare independence at the end of the month, but it'll take the Legion a little longer to get there. Well, so a lot of the things that are going on with the Red Army and the White Army There's a lot of fear in our own home country, fear of socialism, fear of Marxism. Does that have an effect on how we act over there? Yes, I think it absolutely does. And it's interesting. I feel like my impression growing up was that this dichotomy between America and Russia or America and communism really got its start after World War II. But this is where this begins. This is the Americans and the Allies coming in and saying, we're on the side of the White Army for a number of different reasons and pitting themselves against the Bolsheviks. Socialism in Western countries and even in the Eastern countries as well, you know, at the turn of the century, it's a lot to do with industrialization and unionization and workers' rights. There's a lot of different flavors of it, a lot of different philosophies. And it it does take a while for all of those different kinds of thoughts about politics and personhood to get shoved under this big umbrella of communism. I don't think that's quite happened yet, but they are sort of starting to be associated with one another. And there's definitely an anti-socialist sentiment in America. I think a lot to do with the socialists being vocal pacifists and pacifism being seen as very anti-American themes of the 20th century are starting to settle, including what's going on in the Caucasus as the Ottoman Empire falls apart, and what's going on in the Middle East as there's a lot of British troops and French presence 
in the Middle East and the Caucasus, not necessarily trying to take control of land, but trying to have some sort of say in who ends up in power as empires fall apart. Ed, you had mentioned earlier that this is the time of Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, Lawrence is accompanying and helping to inspire the Arab Revolt, which is increasingly in the late summer and into the autumn, wresting away control of the Middle East from the remnants of the Ottoman Empire. They're going to capture Damascus in October, but they're already tearing away Ottoman rule from much of what is now Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and the rest of those countries. The global implications of this are going to be huge. It's clearly that will go down for many generations to come, as well as Catherine said in the Caucasus, which have descended into a state of near anarchy the Ottoman Empire launches its last offensive of the war into the Caucasus in August, which quickly bogs down as the whole region begins to descend into chaos. The Caucasus are just northeast of Turkey on the eastern shore of the Black Sea, the very southern edge of Russia. They're what is now Armenia and Azerbaijan. And Georgia. Exactly. And of course, Chechnya, which has been in the news over the last couple of decades, is finding its own national voice in this period. What about the war in the sky? What's going on with that? So there's the very last airship raid of the war. Five Imperial German Navy Zeppelins attempt to bomb England. Most of their bombs fall into the North Sea, because apparently this month, 100 years ago, it's very cloudy. And so they miss England almost entirely. And then the mission proves even more disastrous because a Royal Air Force pilot shoots down one of the Zeppelins, airship L-70, killing its entire crew, including the Imperial German Navy Airship Division commander, Peter Strasser. So his death ends any further airship raids on Great Britain. So over the course of the war, the German airships conducted about 210 raids. They dropped some 6,000 bombs, killed 528 people, and injured 1,100 more. And more importantly, their goal of terrifying the home front was pretty successful. And also a good point to remember, by the way, for those who didn't, that the entire Zeppelin force was actually under the German Navy, not some kind of an air force. What about on the U.S. side? We actually launch our air service this month, don't we? We do. At the end of the month, on the 26th, the AEF establishes the first Army Air Service to support American ground troops on the Western Front. And this is just a matter of having enough bodies to actually establish an entire air service. Additionally, an American pilot, Field Eugene Kindley, shoots down a Fokker plane that happens to be piloted by Lothar von Richthofen, the brother of the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, who has been killed earlier in the war. Lothar was an ace himself, but he survives this encounter and suffers such serious wounds that he doesn't fly in combat ever again. So that's the end of the Richthofens for World War I. So, Catherine, you always find some little oddities for us. What's your oddity this time? Okay, so I have two kind of interesting battles, one debatably a part of World War I. That would be the Battle of Ambos Nogales. So at the end of August on the 27th, U.S. troops with the 35th Infantry Regiment and some Buffalo soldiers from the 10th Cavalry 
engage in a skirmish against Mexican forces in the border town of Nogales, Arizona. 28 American soldiers are wounded, four are killed, 30 Mexican soldiers are killed, as well as 100 Mexican civilians, including the mayor of this border town who tried to quell the fighting. The fighting seems to have started when someone tried to cross the border without having a bag inspected by US Customs, and then shots were fired. Tensions are very, very high between the US and Mexico at the time because the Germans advise Mexico. And in fact, there are multiple German military advisors on the ground during this skirmish, and two of them actually get killed. That would be why this is maybe considered the only battle of World War I fought on American soil. And the first time I've heard the story, that's great. Yes, it's an interesting one. That's a, it's a great story. The other one would be on August 13th, back over in the Alps, where Italy and Austria-Hungary are still fighting, there's the Battle of San Mateo. Italian Alpine troops launch a surprise attack on the peak of Ortler Mountain in the Alps, which was being held by Austro-Hungarian troops. About half of the Austro-Hungarians are captured, the others retreat off the summit. The most interesting thing about this particular battle is that it was the highest battle ever fought for about 100 years at an altitude of 2,800 meters, which is almost 10,000 feet. The highest battle ever fought now was part of the Cargill War, fought in Kashmir in 1999, and that was fought at almost double that height, at 5,600 meters. It's time for Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. A warning to our listeners with children present, the following contains graphic descriptions of violence. Mike, your post this week pretty much echoes the theme from the August preview roundtable. It kind of seems like the tide has turned. It certainly seems so. The headline reads, The Allied Offensive Gains Strength, Germans Falling Back, Americans Pressing Forward. The Germans Know All Was Lost, and MacArthur Confronts the Dead. This is special to the Great War Project. In these days on the Western Front, the Americans have become increasingly active, especially in the Allied effort to protect Paris from German occupation. By late July, a century ago, according to a story in Martin Gilbert, the American soldiers leave their trenches and advance through the pulverized German lines. The Germans fought with every resource of personal bravery and technical skill to halt the onward march of their newfound enemy. But according to a story in Gilbert, by late July, the German threat to Paris was over. By the end of the fourth day of the French offensive, an estimated 30,000 German soldiers had been killed. This quickly becomes a key battleground for the Allies, with the Americans playing an essential role. On July 22nd, the Germans fell back more than five miles and were being driven back even further on the next day, the day on which British tanks and infantry advancing two miles on the Somme front captured nearly 2,000 German prisoners. The Germans, reports Gilbert, had not been pushed back this far before. The tide turns against the Germans. Later, the German chancellor writes, on July 18th, even the most optimistic among us knew that all was lost. The history of the world was played out in three days. It was a textbook series of moves, the failure of the German offensive and a dramatically successful Allied counterattack. Among the American officers leading the American portion of the successful Allied offensive was Colonel Douglas MacArthur, 
crossing no man's land in one French sector to be confronted, he writes, only by what he recalled as the moans and cries of wounded men apparently left behind when their comrades in arms had withdrawn. Wright's historian Gilbert MacArthur estimated that he passed at least 2,000 German corpses. Stopping from time to time to examine the dead and wounded, he identified the insignias of six different German divisions. During his reconnaissance, he suddenly saw in the light of a flare a German machine gun pointed directly at him. When the crew did not fire, he writes, he crawled up to the gun. Writes, they were all dead, all dead. The lieutenant with shrapnel through his heart. The sergeant with his belly blown into his back. The corporal with his spine where his head should have been. For his exploit, Gilbert reports, MacArthur was awarded his fourth silver star. Later that day, he led his men in a successful attack on the new German line. Fighting continues in many sectors of the front line, among them the French town of Soissons. In early August, after a fierce struggle, the French drive the Germans out of Soissons. Reports Gilbert, among the German soldiers who had fought throughout the retreat was Corporal Adolf Hitler. For his personal bravery, he was awarded the Iron Cross, which he wore for the rest of his life. Hitler was recommended for the medal by a Jew. And that's news from the Great War Project this week, a century ago. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. And that's how it was 100 years ago in August of 1918. Now it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the podcast focuses on now and how the centennial of World War I is being commemorated. This week in Commission News, we're highlighting the commemorations taking place in Europe this summer. Already started and continuing in France are a series of commemorative events that follow the centennial of major military actions that happened 100 years ago during the summer and the fall of 1918. This includes the Battle at Croix Rouge Farm, the Battle of Amiens, commemorations in Flanders, and a whole lot more. You can follow and even participate remotely in these events by posting to social media by using the hashtag Amiens100. That's A-M-I-E-N-S 100. This will bring your social media post into a special dashboard we built here at the Commission, where we can curate the posts and select the best ones to include on the national website. Check it out at www.cc.org international, all lowercase. And if you're at the event or you have something to contribute, just tag your social media post with hashtag Amiens100. Now, I want to close this section with a great story about something that happened at the commemoration at the Croix Rouge Farm last week. There are these two really interesting young American doughboy reenactors, the twin brothers named Seth and Garrett Moore. Now, we met them a while ago, and they've participated in several commission events. They're such wonderful and poignant ambassadors for the Doughboys because Seth and Garrett are very young men, late teens, early 20s. And when you look at them in their World War I uniforms, you can't help but think about the thousands of young men, young boys really, who went over there at such a tender age. Anyway, the whole family's in France to observe the commemoration at the Croix Rouge farm when it suddenly comes up that the event organizers have a problem. 
their doughboy, a key participant in the program, is suddenly unable to attend. Well, it comes up that Seth Moore steps up and ends up filling the missing role in the ceremony. I have this unconfirmed vision in my own mind of the twins standing toe-to-toe, tossing a coin, two out of three, to see who gets to step up. Now, one of the ceremony organizers, Monsieur Hubert Calou, said that Seth represented the doughboy with all the proper soldierly virtues. He executed the manual of arms by the numbers, including fixed bayonet, as he rendered honors to the dead whose names are being called during the roll of honor. Mr. Kalu said that he was center stage in front of hundreds of people, hundreds of soldiers and veterans, with a critical eye for accuracy, and he didn't miss a count. Monsieur Kalud concluded with, we salute him. And so do we. A big shout out to the entire Moore family for their great dedication and support of the centennial over the past and the coming months. We've got links for you to our international page and various European commemorative events in the podcast notes. Now for our section, Remembering Veterans. In a recent editorial planning session, the subject came up, and although it's only part of our theme for this section, I'm really excited that we're about to tackle the intriguing subject of the re-chickenization of France. Interesting, huh? Well, it's part of what the DAR, the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution, took on for post-war Europe. Joining us today is Tracy Robinson, Director of Archives and History for the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Teo. It's a pleasure to be with all of you today. Tracy, could you start off by telling us a little bit about the Daughters of the American Revolution, when and how the group started, and how its mission has evolved over the years? DAR was founded here in Washington, D.C. during the fall of 1890 by four women, along with a few of their colleagues, in response to the Sons of the American Revolution, having just been founded earlier that year, in the spring of 1890. And very quickly after their founding, they voted to exclude women from membership, which didn't go over very well with women who didn't think their patriotism should be discarded on account of their sex. So DAR is a volunteer service organization. All of the service projects undertaken by chapters and state societies seek to honor in one way or another one or more of the society's three objectives, which are patriotism, education, and historic preservation. And all of these efforts include both supporting active duty military personnel and assisting veterans programs. To join DAR, you must be a woman at least 18 years of age and be able to prove your direct descent from a Revolutionary War patriot. And when you consider, as we will, the enormous volume of work DAR members did to support the Allied effort during World War I, it becomes even more remarkable when you remember that DAR was relatively young. They hadn't celebrated their 27th birthday yet when the United States entered the war in 1917, but they got themselves organized very quickly. Well, they did a lot of wonderful things during the war. And one of the programs just happens to fascinate me, mostly because I love the term. The DAR took on the challenge to re-chickenize France. Now, what does that mean? And it begs the question, how did France get de-chickenized? Well, France got defooded pretty much during the war. 
In June 1918, the DAR learned of a plan the American Committee for Devastated France had devised to do what they called re-chickenize France. The DAR responded with a bulletin proposing that daughters organize local campaigns to involve their community's children in this project. This sort of funny words at all I thought would appeal to children. The goal of the fundraising campaign was to supply the French people with much-needed poultry farms to fill a gap in their food supply. A donation of only 10 cents placed a chick on a farm. A donation of 25 cents placed an egg in an incubator. $400 established a poultry farm with two incubators, a thousand eggs, and one wounded soldier to work as the poultry man for one year. And so to encourage donations, the DAR created a button pin with a drawing of a chicken and the phrase, I have a chicken in France, which was given for those 10 and 25 cent donations. Post-war, you played a huge role in establishing thousands of memorials in the U.S. honoring those who served in World War I. Can you tell us a bit more about that? The DAR has and has always had a very large historical marker program, generally speaking. There are not only thousands of markers in the U.S., but in many other countries in the world as well, especially in Belgium and France, where World War I is concerned. And our leadership has encouraged our membership to identify and report World War I memorials to the commission and also to apply to the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program as appropriate. However, I think that the most important post-war memorial was a living memorial of sorts, and it involved an effort by DAR to rebuild the village of Tillawa, France, which is located in the central northern part of the country. The entire village had been destroyed in the war, and subsequently the wife of the French ambassador contacted DAR leadership to ask for help. And after much discussion and planning and a visit to Tillawa by DAR leadership, the society decided to fund a complete water system for the village as, and this is the touching part, as repayment to France for its aid during the American Revolution. And it was finally finished and dedicated during the summer of 1921 with both DAR members and French leaders in attendance. Everything DAR members do is in honor of the sacrifices their ancestors made while fighting the American Revolution. And it must have been a proud moment and probably a very healing experience after witnessing so much devastation to have this opportunity to rebuild part of that village, at least as partial payment, to our greatest ally during the American Revolution. I know we've had a number of DAR chapters sign up for our Bells of Peace. It's a national bell tolling on the centennial of the armistice on November 11th at 11 a.m. local. How do we invite all the chapters to join? One of DAR's permanent committees, it's called the Commemorative Events Committee, and they encourage DAR chapter members to join in local commemorations. Our plans on the national level aren't firm yet. We're still tossing some ideas around about November. Tracy, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Dale. Tracy Robinson is the Director of Archives and History for the National Society, Daughters of the American Revolution. Learn more about the DAR, their archives, and the role in World War I by following the links in the podcast notes. This week in our Historian's Corner, the subject is hogs. No, not hogs like chickens. We're talking motorcycles, and specifically we're talking Harley-Davidson. 
with our two friends from France, Christophe and Pierre, rolling across the country on their restored World War I-era Harley for Operation Twin Links. We thought it would be a perfect time to reach out to Harley-Davidson to talk about their motorcycles in World War I. Their archives lead, Bill Jackson, took some time from his busy schedule to join us today and tell us more about the company and their iconic machines during World War I. Bill, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, Bill, how and when did Harley-Davidson itself get its start? William Harley and Arthur Davidson met as teenagers, and there's some mystery about that early period for Harley, but we know that they sold their first motorcycle to a friend of Arthur Davidson's, we believe in 1903. It could have been 04, but we believe it was 03, in the backyard of the Davidson home here in Milwaukee. Cars and motorized vehicles were brand new ideas at the turn of the century. How common and popular were motorcycles around 1914? Well, by 1914, they're getting more popular, and there's a few major players, including Harley-Davidson. And by then, one of their emerging big competitors in the U.S. was Indian Motorcycles out of Massachusetts. But it's taking off, and there was even robust motorcycle magazines of the period and motorcycle shows just like you can go to now, just like there were car shows in those days. As you aptly put it, it was an exploding market. So I spoke to a Harley history buff a few years ago, and as I recall from the conversation, it was Indian as a brand that probably shipped more units into Europe than Harley did in World War I. But he also said that this was what gave Harley a huge break locally because it opened up the business in America because Indian was busy building stuff for the military. There's a lot of truth to that. For the first year of military production for the war effort specifically was 1917. And about half of Harley's production went to the military. But by the end of 1918, the vast majority of Harley's production was going to the military. So both Harley and Indian were suppliers. But yes, Harley, by that point, had a very robust dealer network, and they had already been growing a dealer network outside the U.S. borders. So a couple of questions. What was the role of motorcycles in World War I, and how did this affect the industry and the product and Harley in particular? One of the biggest uses was motor dispatch service, MDS. People sometimes misunderstand the motorcycle as a combat vehicle, which, of course, it wasn't. I think what people are probably thinking about is that pretty well-known picture of the Harley with that installed machine gun. Right, and that specific vehicle was developmental. Um, As far as we know, that was actually never used in the field. But for things like dispatch use, uh, courier use, sometimes escort service, and it had actually stemmed from Harley would have been providing motorcycles to the U.S. military prior to World War I as part of the U.S.-Mexican border conflict. So you would commonly see these motorcycles that were really not much different than what the civilians could buy. Do you have a particular story or incident about World War I and about Harley that you can share? Absolutely, because the very first American who set foot on German soil, November 12th of 1918, the day after the armistice, was a corporal named Roy Holtz of the U.S. Army, and he actually entered Germany riding a Harley-Davidson motorcycle with sidecar when he did it. I guess a curious part of the story is that photo showed up in Harley-Davidson's house organ, which was the Enthusiast magazine, and lo and behold, a few years later, Roy Holtz showed up for a factory tour in Milwaukee. And he said, by the way, I'm the guy in that photo. And they really had this amazing, like, oh my gosh, it's you. So they got some good play out of that, that Roy Holtz, the first American, actually showed up here on a factory tour. That's a great story. Now, it's interesting that a lot of veterans wind up really interested in riding motorcycles. 
veterans as riders, including before, during, and after wartime as a common thing. You'll even find Harley-Davidson dealerships deliberately set up near military bases because there's just a, such a huge crossover of passion for motorcycling, motorcycling enthusiasm, and the part of service people. Well, so relative to this, let's talk about our friends from France and Operation Twin Link. That's the expedition where the boys are crossing the country on a reconstructed World War I Harley. Do you know Christophe and Pierre? Have you met? I actually did not get the chance to meet them when they were here. I was actually looking out our office window when I saw them coming up on the intersection closest to the museum. It's not every day you see a 1918 Harley-Davidson with a sidecar in the streets of Milwaukee. So they had a very busy schedule, but I got a good look at the bike. It's clear to me it's one of these works of passion of getting this old machine running and capable. And I think their goal, when it's all said and done, is to cover 5,000 miles in the U.S. Very impressive. Well, they're an interesting couple of guys. They're not really sponsored and, you know, they're taking a nice ride. I mean, that's really what they're doing and it's on your Harley. So that's great. And of course, it's a great Harley testament that a century old machine can still cross the country. Absolutely. And we are the oldest motorcycle manufacturer. Not many out there can say that they're 100 years old. And it happens to be, I'm sure, as you know, that we're also celebrating the 115th anniversary of the company. And congratulations on that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Our listeners love motorcycles and they love Harley. So thank you for coming by. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bill Jackson is the archive lead for Harley Davidson. Learn more about Harley Davidson and the history of motorcycles in wartime by following the links in the podcast notes. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on local World War I memorials. This week, we're headed to Lackawanna County in northeast Pennsylvania, where a brand new World War I memorial was built and dedicated for the centennial of the war that changed the world. Here to tell us about the project are Jim Davenport, past president of the Rotary Club of Dunmore and owner of Dunmore Properties, and Louise McLafferty, retired director of the YMCA. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Well, let me start by congratulating you on being one of the select few in the country. I think there's less than a dozen of you who took on the challenge of correcting a wrong and building a World War I memorial because your community didn't have one. Can you tell us the story of the county in World War I and your decision to build the memorial? Sure. We recognized that many soldiers, many boys, as we would call them because they were boys when they died, were buried in France. And there was no monument with their names on it, on their home soil. And we felt that was an injustice and that should be done. Also, we did it for the living. And we researched this project. And with that, we met a lot of families who lost a great uncle or another person. And we recognized their sacrifice. We're a very patriotic club, the Dunbar Rotary Club. And this sacrifice is what, are what made our nation great. And we've been truly inspired by the outpouring of support we received from the community, not just the Lackawanna County, various foundations, and a lot of private donors. I know Louise would agree that we were overwhelmed by the amount of support, I think even more than we had hoped for. And now it sits in a very prominent, high-traffic location of Dunmore, Pennsylvania, where families can just park and take a minute and just acknowledge sacrifice and count our blessings. Well, you know, one of the things that I find that's really fascinating is we have the same issue in the nation's capital. No national memorial to World War I in Washington, D.C. You in Lackawanna County and Washington, D.C., in those terms, were really brethren in arms. Now, I understand that when you did the project, you paid a lot of attention to make sure that you got all of the names. 
And I have to credit Jim for his integrity with this project of including everyone. We put numerous articles in the newspaper. We really worked hard to get an accurate number and not to omit anyone's names. Well, Jim, part of the issue that you ran into was that a lot of the records of service burned up. How did you go about finding all the names? We used a book, Soldiers of the Great War, which we believe was prepared by the U.S. Army, which listed all the war dead, not just killed in action, but died of disease or died of accident. We decided to do them by that book and cross-reference all the men from Pennsylvania. But knowing mistakes can be made, we built a big four-by-eight, almost a billboard of plywood, and we listed the names. We put a big coming soon sign for the monument, hoping that passers-by would see that and be able to say, hey, that name's missing. And also, we advertised in the Strand Times, was very generous, and we had one person, Sergeant Morgan, who was not on the list, and the reason he wasn't was that there was a typographical error in the book. And the family, at the time of this advertising, didn't know she had an uncle who passed. So we just did, a week ago, a mini unveiling, where we added one name to the the monument, Sergeant Morgan, and his descendants were kind enough to attend the ceremony, and I personally found it very moving. One of the many rewards we received from hard work we put in this project. Well, Louise, were you involved in the fundraising? I certainly was. In my career as a YMCA director, I certainly had to do a lot of fundraising for my job. So we went out on a campaign asking area businesses and private individuals to subscribe to our project by making donations for a paver. We went out to Lackawanna County, the commissioners. We received a community block grant after an extensive grant application and interview from them. We also did a lot of PR. There was a lot of good publicity from the Scranton Times, and people seemed to get on board. But I do want to mention, first off, we had to approach the borough of Dunmore, Pennsylvania, because where the monument is located is their property, and we had to ask them for permission to install it there And they were most generous and happy to have it there. When did you guys hear about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program? And did it influence the project? I received an email. Your people might have read a newspaper article. Well, actually, that email was from me. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) So nice to meet you. (laughs) I should have said very articulate, (laughs) well-written. You most generously supported the project, which was critical in making it happen. So we thank you for your most generous support. Louise is very modest, but she put in a lot of hours and uh, grants, including the Lackawanna County grant, and a lot of time and effort. Thank you. So, Louise, what was the most challenging part of the project for you? Well, the most challenging was that I really wanted to be accepted by Lackawanna County and to get the amount that we asked for. So, you know, I've been retired for about five years now and had to go back and do some grant work. And I just wanted to get it so badly. It was challenging, but we all worked together as a club. Well, congratulations to your whole community. The memorial's quite beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jim Davenport, Dunmore Rotary Pass President, and Louise McLafferty, retired YMCA director. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program by following the link in the podcast notes. All right, now for our weekly feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. And here's the setup. In early World War I, tactics were simple, very old school. 
everybody moves forward in a big organized wave, like a big frontal attack. A couple of things evolve to make that a worse and worse idea. First of all, the opposite side started getting dug into trenches, and that's a pretty defensible position. And well, of course, then there's the machine gun. So one tactic developed by the German officers was the infiltration tactic, a tactic the Prussian army had experimented with in earlier wars. With this, small groups sneak over no man's land at key points really fast, rather than a massive frontal attack. Now these men would then spread through the trenches and attack soldiers from the sides and the insides rather than the outsides. Speed was the key in keeping the enemy off guard. Independent thinking and resourcefulness was also really important without a large central command structure calling the shots. The Germans' first division-scale unit of these new tactic-trained soldiers was formed in March of 1915, and it was called Sturmabteilung, which translates as Storm Division. And it worked. A new Storm Division was added to each army command the next year. By 1917, the German army was recruiting and training Stoßtroops, or shock troops, for every German company. So, these Storm Division shock troops leads directly to our speaking World War I word for this week. In English, the terms got combined into one word, stormtroopers. Though Germany and their elite fighters, the stormtroopers, lost in World War I, the stormtroopers' reputation remained so high that when Hitler named the Nazi Party's paramilitary wing years later, he decided on Sturmabteilung, or Storm Division. And the concept and the reputation of these power troops is still with us. When George Lucas began looking for a good name for the military forces for the Empire in Star Wars, the name was obvious. They're Imperial Stormtroopers. Stormtroopers. An attack tactic a term for fierce elite attack troops in World War I and in a galaxy far, far away, and also this week's word for speaking World War I. Learn more by the links in the podcast notes. For this week's World War I war tech, a special metallic material that's everywhere around us today, a material that really got its start a hundred years ago. Okay, here's the story. In 1913, the company of Thomas Firth & Sons, based in Sheffield, England, was challenged by a small arms manufacturer to develop a metal alloy for bullets that would prove resistant to all forms of corrosion inside a gun barrel. Firth's R&D chief, a guy named Harry Brearley, immediately went to work on the problem. And soon, he discovered an alloy that will largely define the look of the early 21st century. He ran loads of experiments, testing his idea for a new alloy by adding differing amounts of a mineral called chromium to steel. Then in August of 1913, he comboed about 13% chromium, added a dash of carbon, and voila, he'd invented stainless steel. But his bosses saw issues and problems for the uses of rustless steel as munitions, so Brerley had an idea. He suggested collaborating with Sheffield's cutlery industry to produce a silverware that resisted rusting because his new material showed a great resilience against things like lemon juice and other strong acidics. But his bosses at Firth didn't see a big application for that either. 
So, Rarely partnered with a local cutlery manufacturer, R.F. Mosley & Company, to produce several sets of silverware, and then he distributed them to his friends, with the caveat that they had to return the sets if they became stained or rusty. None of them were returned. But then came World War I. Brearley left the company in 1915, a kind of a messy affair that included a rights dispute over his invention. Brearley joined Brown Bailey Steelworks, a competitor, on the basis that he'd be allowed to continue his research into stainless steel. Now, stainless steel never did find its way into British bullets, but it became an important part of aircraft engines during the war, since the alloy could perform really well under high stress and temperatures produced by these machines. That being said, the war itself probably did more to hurt the development of stainless steel than facilitate it. Similar developments were being made in Germany by a company called Krupp Steel. But of course, as enemies, Brearley and Krupp's were prevented from contacting one another while the war raged on for years. Early collaboration between the two could have done much to impact the rapid evolution of this magnificent metal. But of course, eventually it became very popular. Stainless steel. Who knew that it came from this era? I didn't. But we do know it's this week's focus for World War I Wartech, and we have links for you in the podcast notes. This week in articles and posts, where we highlight stories that you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. Headline, World War I Memorial Charts Path Forward. The American Society of Landscape Architects website last week published an in-depth article regarding the approval by the Commission of Fine Arts of the updated design for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. It's a good read for anyone who wants to hear the many sides of the story. Headline, National Women's History Museum Suffragettes Walking Tour in D.C. Highlights World War I Connections. There's a new hidden treasure for those who live near Washington, D.C., or those making a visit. It's a walking tour presented by the National Women's History Museum that's now occurring every other week on Friday, and once a month on Saturday. World War I Centennial Commission intern Miranda Halpin took the tour and provides a list of the top stops that help explain how the suffragettes supported both their nation at war and the cause of votes for women. Headline, The Story of a Successful Troublemaker. Read about Humphrey Bogart in the third of our series on Hollywood and World War I. Born to a wealthy family, and only ever attending private schools for America's most elite, this young man was a terrible student, uninterested in applying himself in school at all. Even so, he was bound for Yale University until misbehavior at the end of his high school career removed college as an opportunity. With no other good option, young Humphrey Bogard joined the U.S. Navy in 1918, and it turned his life around while serving in World War I as an exemplary sailor. Headline, 23 Oklahoma Bridges Being Renamed to Honor Choctaw World War I and World War II Heroes. The Choctaw Nation made history earlier this year with the dedication of the Joseph Aklahombie World War I Code Talker Bridge in McCurtain County, Oklahoma. The dedication, attended by the Choctaw Tribal Council, 
tribal members, local city and county and state officials, is the first of 23 bridges being named after the 19 Choctaw Code Talkers from World War I and four from World War II. The project's being done by the Oklahoma Department of Transportation, the biggest bridge undertaking in the history of the department. Headline. This week's featured Doughboy MIA is Corporal Clarence Hawkins. Read the story of Corporal Hawkins, a miner from Indiana who served with the 1st Division, going to France with the 1st American Combat Contingent to go over in June of 1917. He was killed in action by shellfire on May 30, 1918, during the Battle of Cantigny. His remains were buried there on the battlefield where he fell, but later they were never relocated. Finally, our selection from the official World War I Centennial Merchandise Shop. Our featured item this week is the U.S. Victory Lapel Pin. This always popular pin is hand-cast in jeweler's alloy and finished in a satin bronze patina. The design features the star symbolizing victory, honor, and glory. A wreath of evergreen laurel leaves symbolizing the triumph over death. And the U.S. insignia clearly identifying the country served. Links to our merchandise shop and all the articles we've highlighted here are in our weekly dispatch newsletter. Subscribe at www.cc.org slash subscribe. You can also send us a tweet at the WW1 podcast and ask us to send you the link. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what are this week's highlights? Hey there, Teo. We've shared a couple of great photos and articles this week about local dedications and rededications of World War I memorials across the U.S. In Belmar, New Jersey, the town's Spirit of the Doughboy statue is back atop his pedestal. The statue was reinstated on July 27th with some 50 people in attendance in the small park under the Route 35 bridge. The statue's been undergoing a major restoration project for the last three months after unidentified vandals broke off the left hand and rifle of the monument nearly two years ago. The statue was originally erected in 1930 to honor the 102 men and women from Belmar who served during World War I. You can read more about the statue and see a video of the rededication at the link in the notes. We also shared a photograph on Facebook of a new World War I memorial unveiled on June 2nd in Solomon City Park in Dickinson County, Kansas. During the ceremony, a time capsule was buried to commemorate the 100th anniversary of World War I. The capsule contained a medallion from the city of Salina that was given to a World War I veteran, coins from 1917 and 1918, a list of Dickinson County veterans who died in World War I, and copies of letters written by a local man, Ralph Viola, who died in battle during the war. The capsule will be opened in 50 more years. We also have links in the notes for you to learn more about that ceremony and this new World War I memorial. Last for the week, the U.S. Army Center of Military History put out their Trivia Tuesday video, and this week it has a World War I theme. You can watch it and learn some interesting facts about the Roosevelts and their service during World War I by following the links in the podcast notes. That's it this week for The Buzz. And that wraps up episode number 83 of World War I Centennial News. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, 
Tracy Robinson, Director of Archives and History for the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution. Bill Jackson, Archives Lead for Harley-Davidson. Jim Davenport and Louise McLafferty, from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Lackawanna County, Pennsylvania. Catherine Akey, World War I Photography Specialist and Line Producer for the podcast. Many thanks to Mac Nelson, our wonderful sound editor. Our summer intern has been J.L. Michaud. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators and their classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.1cc.org cn. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places you get your podcasts and even using your smart speaker by saying play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. It's a long way to Berlin, but we'll get there. Uncle Sam will show the way. Over the line, then across the Rhine, shouting his hip hooray. We'll sing Yankee Doodle under the linden. When we were re-chickenizing France, we built literally thousands of chicken coops, each of them with two doors. So why, you may ask, didn't we build the chicken coops with four doors instead? Because, of course, that would have made the chicken coops chicken sedans. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) So long.